every time that I did something that I thought was morally correct, I was literally always punished for it. (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. I'm here today with my friend, Lily Sage. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. It's an (laughs) honor to have you back. Yay. It's my joy and pleasure. Thanks for having me. Today's episode is part one of a conversation about restorative justice, and you can tune in next week for part two. I do want to apologize before we dive into the episode. I screwed up. I haven't had a webcam in about 15 years, and I didn't realize during recording that the program I use grabbed audio from the new webcam I left plugged in, rather than the beautiful professional mic I use for literally every episode. I've cleaned things up to the best of my ability, and hopefully the program I use during upload will improve it further. My bad, my humblest apologies lesson learned. And now it's time for trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following sexual assault, rape, trauma, violence, the justice system, police, systemic oppression, racism, eugenics, ableism, generational trauma, addiction, substances, and the pandemic. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue. I'm not quite sure how to start off. And we were just talking about a paper that you wrote about a decade ago that you don't want to cite (laughs) or don't necessarily want people to read, um, but it is worth talking about. And I don't know if that's where we want to start or, um, yeah. Um, So the paper that I wrote, I wrote it when I was in college and at the time it was kind of groundbreaking research in some ways, I guess. But now it's quite common knowledge stuff, I think, for the most part, in a post Me Too era. But it's a piece that was me trying to make sense of living in a rape culture and how different people and different subcultures in particular deal with it. At the time, I was like kind of just learning about terminology like, because I don't think it was that popular yet, um, intersectionality, and uh, the curiarchy and sort of bigger concepts like that that help us to understand the different varying systems that all conspire to keep us oppressed as you know people in a society and as people in particular who, um, at least in my case and the perspective that I was really coming from at the time that I was writing this paper, that people, people who are brought up as femme and present as femme in the world, which has extended now, you know, in my knowledge and understanding away from necessarily being uh, AFAB uh, or assigned female mm-hmm. at birth, because I've come to understand, you know, that everybody experiences assault. But at the time, uh, as a teenager, and, and you kind of were present probably for a lot of sort of the more important moments in my life where I came, where I was coming into understanding around these issues um, in high school, etc. Mm-hmm. But Um, but I hadn't met like a trans woman, I don't think until I was 18. So that wasn't really part of my consciousness yet. So that Mm -hmm. is like a perspective to be aware of that's present, um, in this piece. If you are thinking about reading it is that I was citing a lot of second wave feminist theorists that are understood now to be relatively turfy or trans exclusionary in their feminism. And that, that was like part of my I don't know, coming into consciousness around these issues was reading a lot of those theorists like Andrea Dworkin in particular comes to mind. You did cite transphobia, though, like as an obstacle. So you d- you were aware of it, but perhaps didn't have an experience with it. Well, to be real, actually, I think while I was writing the very first draft of that paper when I was probably 19, I was living, I was taking a feminist theory class and living with a with a trans femme roommate. So I was actually talking about a lot of these ideas with her and she like hadn't really committed to a gender yet at the time. And so we had a lot of talks about, you know, uh, how transgressive it could actually be if she chose not to choose a, you know, if she 
decided not to go with a binary gender. So, I mean, these thoughts were on my mind. They just weren't very developed yet, I guess, is the context that I wanted to share. So just read with a discerning eye and like, try not to take offense if you can to the fact that I've cited these theorists. I do think that they're important, even if like we can acknowledge now that they're problematic in various ways or exclusionary in various ways. But they were talking a lot about pornography and sex work and, you know, trans feminism as, as being things that are oppressive forces to what they conceptualize as biologically female people that contribute to rape culture and that are things that we also need to abolish or undermine in order to move out of a rape culture, which I don't agree with anymore. I don't know that I, I, I don't think that I would agree with it at the time either, but, um, but those were the thoughts that I was reading and, and trying to make sense of alongside um, having experiences with all of the people in my life, pretty much including my mom and my aunt and my grandmother having experienced rape, <clears throat> which ultimately ended up being the focus of this paper. So it's about restorative justice, but it kind of comes to that at the end. It begins with, I saw this rape revenge movie and this is how I'm trying to draw a connection with what I'm reading about feminism. And then it's sort of extended into subcultures like punk subcultures or activists, you know, anarchist subcultures that are trying to exist outside of American jurisprudence because there's an inherent critique an abolitionist critique in these subcultures, which means that we're not trying to perpetuate the violence of the state within our, within our own subculture, as we would in the case that we have to make a choice, like to call the police to get a predator out of our community or something. So the restorative justice umbrella is kind of creating space for like a community to actually transform and be restored and experience healing and not just getting rid of people and disposing of them because it understands that this does not actually create justice in the long term. So that's sort of the basis for it was like trying to put together, okay, like I've listened to a lot of riot girl. This is like a particular form of feminism that I've been exposed to. How are they, how are people in this subculture dealing with it? Then I came to understand also that this abolitionist perspective was in fact had nothing to do with the subculture that I was from, <laughs> which was punk, you know, that I sort of identified myself with. And that it actually comes from a critical race theory, which is a nat natural extension of feminist theory um, at a certain point. It's all of marginality. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess that was, that was the difference. I was coming from a perspective in my studies where I was focusing on subcultures primarily in various ways. So I wrote a whole body of work of which this piece, which is called Working on Our Shit, was a component. It was one of four papers. So I did an ethnographic piece that was about urban shamanism in Mongolia, which I think I would actually quite like if I returned to it. I did a piece about radical pedagogy and specifically utilizing materials that are not usually thought of as being educational in the classroom to create connections between people and uh, build critical consciousness, which is a term that comes from mm -hmm. Paolo Freire and his pedagogy of the oppressed. So that was like another component. And then another piece was this piece about um, working on our shit, about radical responses to sexual assault in marginal, marginalized communities. And then the final piece was about um, my experience doing relief work in New Orleans post-Katrina. So that was looking, that piece was looking very much at anarchist subculture, like cre anarchists creating the infrastructure that people need without having to rely on the government. And so the working on our shit was kind of an extension of that in a sense, but it's coming from a sociological and anthropological background. So it's not coming from like a public health or like implementation type of place. It was coming from curiosity around the subcultures that I was in, trying to understand my place in the world and make sense of these experiences that were happening all around me. And actually, it's interesting because I, I reread this lately in preparation for this interview. I read that there's a line that I wrote at the time, <laughs> which unfortunately is no longer true, um, that part of my impetus for writing this piece 
was survivor's guilt because I, I was one of the very few people that I knew at the time who hadn't experienced any kind of an assault. Yeah, that popped out to me as well as, uh, as notable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, so I would say that rather than a subculture, all of marginality, when I say that, uh, the theorists that I or the primary theorists that I was looking at at the time uh, were Angela Davis, who wrote the piece, Are Prisons Obsolete? and has been a professor at UC Santa Cruz for many years, and I think is Professor Emeritus now, and has, you know, been a very important figure in the civil rights and social justice and feminist and abolitionist movements in the United States since the 60s. And um, was kind of one of the first identified political prisoners as well. And she talks about abolitionism needing to be a necessary part of our feminism. And so that's where I was coming from. It's like understanding that like the more that we're locking people up, the less healing that we're actually experiencing as a society or the potential for it. Um, and so trying to come up with different ways to deal with it. So I look at a bunch of different ways. Um, starting with like the way that it's modeled in film, because that was what I had to go off of initially. I would actually love to just pause here to, um, I actually just scroll through your paper and I'd love to just pull out the Angela Davis quote that you had in here that, cause it had, it had kind of sang out to me as well. And it was, uh, if we are already persuaded that racism should not be allowed to define the planet's future, and if we can successfully argue that prisons are racist institutions, this may lead us to take seriously the prospect of declaring prisons obsolete. I love that. Yeah, she's something else, that one. She's a magical mm-hmm. man. Important thinker. She convinced me with her arguments. I think that they're very compelling. I think everybody should be compelled by them in the United States right now because I think she's onto something very real. So that was kind of the direction that this work took. So I started out looking at a bunch of different rape revenge films. The first one that I saw was called Girl's Town. I got it out of a 99 cent bin at a video store that was closing, I think in the summer of 2005 or something like that. Um, And I was like, holy shit, people can do this. And what happens in the film, if I recall, it's been many years since I've watched it, is that... There's a bunch of girls living in the so-called hood in New York City. I can't remember if they're, I think they're in the South Bronx or something. Uh, it's, like I said, been a long time. And something happens to their friend and nobody believes her and she kills herself. And then this group of girls decides to take justice into their own hands and they hunt down the perpetrator of her assault and clear her name, basically. At the time, I found that film to be very inspiring when I saw it. I was like, oh, my God, there's something that you could do besides call the police and like hope that your rape kit gets processed in the next 40 years and you won't be re-traumatized another 15 times going through the court system to try and get justice. You know, like people can do other things. And, and, and at the time, I think that I saw, oh, so I must have been 19. At the time, I think I had just also come back from New Orleans, which was a place following Katrina, where um, I had been exposed to vigilantism. And it had a very, very negative connotation for me, because in that case, obviously, there were white supremacists who were just, um, you know, took it upon themselves to self deputize, (laughs) and, and become vigilantes who were enacting, you know, the racist violence of the state, they were just murdering, you know, black folks on site who were trying to survive after having been trapped in New Orleans following the flood. So like seeing this other way that vigilanteism could work uh, was kind of inspiring for me at the time. And then right around then, I went to a conference called the National Conference on Organized Resistance that was so good, and I wish it still existed in D.C. And I ran into an ex-boyfriend of mine who was living in Philadelphia, and he told me about an organization that he was working with then called Philly Stands Up, which actually was born out of an incident that occurred, I think, the summer before at a music festival that we attended together in Philadelphia, where a couple of different women were raped by like the same couple of punks who had come from out of town. And they told some other women about it, and they like created their own ad hoc response, 
which an organization ultimately came out of. But it was very similar feeling to me at the time when I was hearing about it to like kind of what I saw in Girls Town. So it compelled me to explore those ideas more deeply. And that that's what the paper is about. So it's like trying to synthesize, uh, okay, there's these organizations that are trying to fill the gaps. There's this dialogue that's happening in dominant culture in this very particular way as well through the cinema that people are responding to in a very particular way. Like rape revenge films were actually a very popular and lucrative aspect of the exploitation cinema market in the seventies and also experienced a revitalization. So I was like trying to understand also why was this? And also what was the appeal for me psychologically? Like, why was I interested in this? So it was both an exploration kind of on a, on a cultural level, on a subcultural level, and then on a personal kind of personal ethical aerobics or whatever, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. And, uh, and I, I found it really interesting to, to read that part of the paper where, uh, where at the time you said, uh, I'm like the only person I know that hasn't experienced assault. And you mentioned a part of watching these films as being a part of that survivor's guilt and trying to maybe process or understand something that you hadn't at that time experienced and that everyone around you had, and that was so present in the culture that you were living in. And this violence that had touched your life, but not quite touched your life. And uh, yeah, processing that and then also trying to figure out if, uh, if if there were things hidden in those films that could lead you to, that could help you be more supportive of survivors that you loved in your life. And I found that, um, I found that really interesting. Yeah, that was a big part of it at the time for me, I think. We, we kind of, you and I together actually shared a moment that we got punished for. And I was reflecting on this lately too, where one of our friends in class one day told us that she had been raped and um, we were very young and naive and we left school in the middle of the day and walked to the police station to report it. (laughs) And, um, and then ended up, you know, doing a couple of days of detention or something for it. But like, that was kind of my first exposure to how inept the legal system is, I mean, now I've come to understand in all regards, but at that time, and now especially, you know, I'm full disclosure going through my own legal process right now. But at the time, that was fairly burgeoning knowledge for me and 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 was pretty heartbreaking. Uh, as I imagine, probably, you know, a lot of white people have felt coming to understand that the police are not actually around to protect them this, in, in this year. Um, uh, but it was like sort of a loss of innocence, in a sense, that moment um, that informed a lot of my thought and activity for for many years, you know, for better or for worse, however consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, I think that was. Um, yeah, I've never I've never forgotten that. And I think we we both had very, very different experiences of that because I I went there with no expectations, understanding that. I think I, I think I, if I remember correctly, I did go there with the understanding that we would not be capable of filing a report. Yeah, I that, think I um, understood that too. That she would have had to do it, but still feeling the need that we had to inform authorities of a predator. And ultimately, like looking back, I feel like considering it was a small town and that we knew the detective that we spoke to ultimately, like all things considered, uh, the response was, I mean, it could have been a lot worse because what we got was there isn't anything I can do unless your friend chooses to come forward, but here's what I can do. And he said, I can promise you that (laughs) I think he was, he was fairly forthcoming. He said, basically, like if I ever pull this kid over and basically there was like the, um, the illusion to kind of like the the like, and I will pull this kid over because <laughs> I've pulled this kid over before. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just said, I can promise that if there's a girl in the car with him that's under 18, I will make sure she gets home. Mm-hmm. And that 
you know, that's as much as he could do in those circumstances. And that's not ultimately like in the scheme of things. No, that's not good enough. But considering the system that isn't currently in place, that was better than better than a lot of responses. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reflecting the other day on how often, particularly in middle school and high school, how much unlearning I've had to do since middle school and high school because um, the messaging was so fucking confusing of like every time that I did something that I thought was morally correct, I was literally always punished for it. <laughs> like pretty much. What other times? Oh, I'm like remembering the school walkouts that I organized for. Oh my God, you're right. Against the war <laughs> in Iraq and the against the war in Afghanistan um, and other occasions when I just stood up for what I believed in. And that was, I feel like what I was doing all the time in high school mm-hmm. or even like if I just expressed an in actual genuine interest in learning or like actually doing an assignment to learn from it, I, I was punished for that. It was just like on every level. <laughs> it's just been an interesting reflection yeah. and aside. Pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, the, just all the levels that people end up having to deprogram themselves you know, through life, whether it's, you know, the educational system or, you know, political stuff or, you know, just various social um, or gender norms or just there are so many levels of programming and then taking into account that not everybody is is going to be cognizant of that indoctrinization that's that's taken place and being able to to make the choice to to actively do that work. And that's it. It's all fucked, yo. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting now in the context of what I'm going through right now. Um, because currently, I'll just let your listeners know in brief um, that I am being charged with multiple felonies for my participation in the removal of a racist obelisk. Um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> there's talk right now of the city engaging those of us who have been charged so far. There's six of us that are charged for the post-obelisk removal activities, but there are two people that were also arrested on the site at the time before the obelisk even came down and are dealing with many charges. Um, but it's it's very interesting trying to understand a restorative justice process as a possibility within this context at all, because it's being, it would be in this case administered as a punishment by the state and a restorative justice process comes out of, you know, human beings that are trying to live outside of the control of the state. It's like explicitly abolitionist in its principles. And also the act that we're being charged with was in and of itself an attempt at restoration of justice, of, of long-standing injustice. So it's just been interesting mm-hmm. to think about in those terms. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, one, of, one of the many frustrating aspects of the current situation. Yeah. Are you familiar with Adrienne Marie Brown? She's an author and a doula, and she worked in harm reduction for many, many years. And I think to some extent still does. And harm reduction is, I guess it's a set of principles and also like a structure for understanding addiction in particular in our society as, you know, as, as a symptom of not being resourced and not feeling cared for. And therefore trying to make the lives of drug users safer, reduce harm, right? So like, uh, like an example of an action that would fall within the sphere of harm reduction would be like a uh, clean needle exchange, um, just as like a very basic example that I think makes it pretty easy for people to understand. And then also from a restorative justice background, she talks about a framework wherein like there's a bunch of questions being asked. So usually what happens in my very limited understanding, and I, I'm, I'm just starting to endure this process for the first time myself, to be real. So um, 
But usually what happens is, uh, like if you're assaulted, for example, since we're, we're talking about, you know, recovering and healing from traumatic experiences of sexual assault. So say you're assaulted and you go through the usual process, you report it to a police officer and they take a statement from you, uh, a victim's statement, and then they press charges or not, which is oftentimes the case. Um, or give you a restraining order or something else along those lines that might make you feel a little bit safer by some standard for a little while. And then you usually have to go through the court system and try and prove that uh, that somebody else caused harm, violent harm to you for which they should be prosecuted, right? And, and, and that needs to be provable usually before uh, a jury of one's peers or the peers of the accused which has frequently not been the case in American jurisprudence, but we'll just put that aside for a moment because that is the principle and the ideal, right? Whereas um, in a restorative justice process, which from what I understand largely comes from indigenous ways of, of understanding and dealing with conflict and community and harm and community, one is approaching it with a framework of why and how to create healing as opposed to uh, retributive justice, as is the case with, with U.S. jurisprudence, right? Where like you do a crime and then you're punished for it most of the time. Now we're seeing sometimes in, in many states now, actually, um, particularly when it comes to juveniles, that there's some kind of an alternative process, oftentimes that comes out of what they call a pre-prosecution diversion program. So this is based on the observations of Angela Y. Davis, who wrote Our Prisons Are Obsolete, and she published all of this data that showed that the U.S. imprisons the most people, most most of their population out of any other, you know, quote-unquote developed nation in the world or first world nation or whatever the fucked up language that we're using to feel superior over other people is now because we have more because we began because we began on our journey of extraction and exploitation 200 years earlier than you know a former colony or whatever right um (laughs) a more recent former colony and that most of the people that we have in prison are black men black and brown men so once that was clarified i think people started being like oh maybe uh we should consider like diverting all of our youth into prison and we should try and come up with some other ways so like one thing that I'm seeing now a fair amount is like, say there was like a 16 year old or a 15 year old that like stole some shit from a convenience store rather than throwing them into juvie or adult prison, which has oftentimes been the case historically. And then they're like caught in the system for their entire lives. Now there's sometimes the offer of one of these pretrial diversion processes that can result in what they call a restorative justice process, which in this context, to my understanding, is usually like there's a couple of mediators. There's the person who supposedly has perpetrated the harm and the person supposedly who has been the recipient or the survivor of the harm. And they would sit down with these mediators and come up with a resolution outside of court. Like, uh, I felt really violated uh, when you stole from, when you stole like a hundred dollars worth of candy from my convenience store. So maybe something that you could do to support my healing is first of all, you could pay back the hundred dollars worth of candy and you could also maybe monitor the security footage on my store camera for the next year or something like, I just made that up, but, um, but that would be the sort of thing. So like, um, I think that's a lot more challenging when it comes to sexual assault because there's, uh, you know, there's a lot there <laughs> um, on so many different le- levels, politically and socially. The first book that I was exposed to on this topic was written by Kay Pranis, and it was called um, Peacemaking Circles. And I'm, I haven't read it again in probably about 10 years um, I really dug it at the time, and I'm pretty sure that she based all of her work on indigenous processes, various indigenous processes. Um, I don't know. I don't remember either how much credit she gave for that, but that's definitely worth saying, particularly in my context, um, wherein, you know, we were trying to restore some justice <laughs> um, in the case of 
the Santa Fe Plaza obelisk, which had an inscription on it where Union soldiers, uh, you know, bravely fought savages, which was sort of looming over the heads of indigenous people who are living throughout New Mexico, but particularly in Santa Fe, formerly known as Ogapoge or White Shell Place in, in the Tewa language. It had been a process that was going, had been ongoing already for 40 plus years since 1973. And the city had agreed over and over again uh, that these statues were just hanging over the heads of indigenous people and that they should be removed, that they're inherently racist and colonial, and that like we need to deal with these symbols before we can, you know, deal with the deeper issues that the symbols represent. These processes have existed in various ways for a really long time and have uh, sort of more recently become like a possibility, I think, in the dominant culture's consciousness for the first time. As as this summer, also during the summer's insurrection during COVID, uh, abolitionism and abolish the PD actually became a rallying cry that was part of dominant culture, which I did. I, I never thought I would see abolitionism enter the mainstream in my lifetime. So, I mean, that's amazing that that has even occurred. But um, yeah, so these processes have taken place on, you know, on reservations and surely before reservations existed in various ways. The way that Kay Pranis in this book, I remember, talked about them being useful was specifically not in regards to sexual assault because it's so loaded and because you can't weigh in everybody's perspective equally in that instance, right? If you've had your body violated, then you have, if that's how you feel mm. personally. And nobody else can say, well, empirically, it did not appear as if you were having your body violated in that moment. It appeared as if you were consenting or whatever the thing may be, right? You, you can't call it community to provide support for a perpetrator and support them as much while, because it will necessarily be undermining the narrative of the survivor of the sexual assault in that instance, which is why I think historically a lot of indigenous communities have not dealt with, I mean, like the really violent crimes, I think, you know, have always been dealt with differently in different tribal nations um, because they're so not monolithic, <laughs> right? But, um, but I think oftentimes banishment ended up being a more popular alternative because they didn't, not popular. When I say popular, I mean for that particular issue because nobody, nobody wants to be banished. You know, that, that was actually, I think in many traditional cultures of the Americas was considered the worst punishment because you're being separated from your relationality and your community and your sense of interconnectedness. Um, whereas death in our culture is, I think, yeah. Well, and I've I've often just noticed that that that's very deeply rooted in us as humans and going back to us evolving as animals. Uh, we're like going back and back and back until we are even primates. As social creatures, we rely on social groups for our survival. Not not just like our mental health, but um, but deep in the wilds, uh, when we were more closely connected to the earth and to our environment in order to um, to exist, to live, if you were banished, if you were shunned, shunning, uh, I mean, that was basically a death sentence for a social animal. Mm -hmm. You you kick them out of the group, they're, they're out in the wilds by themselves. And more often than not, that social animal on its own would fail, would die. And so banishment, I mean, it, it changed when our ability to exist outside of the group changed. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, and, and then we've evolved like this, uh, or created this bizarre kind of incarnation of it, which is, you know, the shunning or the, uh, the, the disappearing of, of people, you know, by removing them from society, not banishing them, but putting them in cages where it's like, Oh, well, we'll just store them over here mm -hmm. you know, away from, from society. Uh, but ultimately it, it just, it doesn't, doesn't fucking solve anything. It doesn't address and that's the also underlying cause of the, of the harm. That's why. None of it, it only perpetuates it. And then that's not even completely the full story of what we're doing because modern day slavery. Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. 
we're exploiting these people and and also perpetuating the traumas that most likely led to whatever happens that got them in there in the first place, if it was even legitimate. Right. Which is a big if. <laughs> because, I, I, yeah, so it's an interesting thing, right? So like in in those early human societies, um, like people were just kind of starting to come up with what are the cultural mores that we want to perpetuate, right? What are the rules of civitas? What, what are the, you know, basically what is a civil society? What does that look like? What, what, what does that mm-hmm. um, encompass? And when you violated the social contract of that society is when you would be shunned, right? So there's like this idea of social contract, and I, which I think is very relevant when yes. we're talking also about boundaries. So I'm also thinking yes. about it like in terms of all of our relationships, but particularly our intimate ones, right? Like there's now this dialogue also taking place in like polyamorous spheres around, I think it's been going on for a while, but it, again, more in the public eye around boundaries and rules and how boundaries, you know, we put them in place so that we can feel safe and function, right? Like if, if people were killing each other willy nilly, it wouldn't be a very safer boundary feeling existence, right? So we create these social contracts that, you know, punish people in the case that they're violating it in whatever way is deemed appropriate by that society at the time. Um, Likewise, like there's a lot of people who practice polyamory or whatever in a way that causes harm. And so there's this idea about boundaries versus rules. And the rule is oftentimes very rigid and oppresses. The boundary is supposed to create safety. Um, And the rule, I think it has that intent as well, but oftentimes has this other undesired effect, right? So um, it's like figuring out also on like a society by society, which, uh, which I don't think that we need to mean like the United States as a society, but like on a smaller community level, like what are the needs of that particular place and those particular people? Because it's also not one size fits all, which is what we've seen, you know, as a result of the prison industrial complex, everybody who has been caught smoking marijuana, you know, three times or whatever is in jail forever. <laughs> and uh, and meanwhile, most of the rapists are walking free. So we know that that's not working very well, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like re-envisioning also what is the social contract. Uh, and I've been thinking about this also a lot lately because I've been rereading The Four Agreements. I don't know if you've read that one. I'm aware of them, but I still haven't read the book actually. Oh, it's such, it's like, it would take you like, an hour probably or two hours going or three, like just an afternoon of reading. It was gifted to me by um, the professor that oversaw my thesis work. Cool. And, and she gave that to, to everyone in her thesis prep class. Cool. It's my mom's favorite gift to give to. I, th- I think it's really useful in a lot of ways, but the basic premise of that book that he talks about in the introduction Don Miguel Ruiz. It's based on Toltec teachings. What he talks about in his introduction is that there's a code of conduct that is enculturated within us, like a set of agreements, this this social contract um, that we are all born into and that we're taught and it's reinforced over and over and over again throughout our childhoods that's domesticating us, right? Uh, Because it's trying to get us to fit into the society in which we were born, which is a mixed bag. You know, there's positive aspects to that because we need to be adjusted and be able to function and deal with other people, right? (laughs) And not hurt them. And then there's also the dimension of it, which is that like it obscures in many cases, our true desires and needs to actually feel aligned and in fulfillment of our ultimate beingness, whatever that means, right? And that we're not even aware of these contracts most of the time. So I, I think it's a pretty interesting work in that sense. I have to think about now with the felonies that I'm facing, what kind of a process I would be open to going through what that could look like. Um, And so I was reading a little bit about what is and isn't transformative justice, according to Adrienne Marie Brown. She wrote this in 2015. So it's obviously, um, you know, been sitting for a while, but it was good for me to read. Her framework 
for restorative justice is basically asking the why. Why did the harm occur to begin with? That, that is the basis for the process, is understanding why the harm occurred and then how to prevent it in the future. She has what she calls the why framework. And then the second part of the framework that she talks about in this piece about transformative justice is what can we learn from this experience? And then how can my real-time actions contribute to transforming this situation versus making it worse? How do I actually like stop from engaging in harm in this moment if it's still happening? What are the behaviors that I can do that can shift it? And then there were some other questions that were brought to my attention again on the transformingharm.org website around it, which are like, what kinds of community infrastructure can we create to support more safety, transparency, sustainability, care, and connection? What are the skills that we need to be able to prevent, respond to, heal from, and take accountability for harmful, violent, and abusive behaviors? What do survivors and people who have caused harm need? And why do survivors and people who have caused harm have so few options in community? And then what are some of the harmful ways that we treat each other that can help set the stage for violence and abuse and how can we change this? So these, this is like in my understanding kind of the basis for restorative versus a punitive justice response, right? Like there's the possibility actually for psychological rehabilitation to take place in a process like this that's well supported. And that is a different issue that I think we should get to next, <laughs> Um which is that, you know, there isn't a lot of support for this sort of thing. Like I said, there's a couple of examples that are cropping up now um, in American jurisprudence, particularly as they relate to juveniles. And now there are some communities that are trying to engage a process like this to have more like cultural reconciliatory ends. Like in the case here in Santa Fe, which as a city tagline has identified for many years as a tricultural community of Anglo, Hispano, and uh, indigenous. Um, what does it actually look like to create repair here? So for indigenous people, for many indigenous people, again, not all of them, even of this area by any means, for many people, one step along that path looked like removing statues that are continuing to psychically oppress, basically, right? And for a lot of yeah. the people who identify as Hispanos or Spanish here, removing those statues constituted a huge violation of their ancestral heritage and their understanding and connectedness to their own identities. For Anglos in this community, there has to be like a, I think at least, that there has to be a reckoning with what is this cultural heritage and how also am I impacting these already existing tensions because there's a, a gap in understanding in the Hispano community that lives in the so-called barrio of Santa Fe and is now being gentrified out, that gentrification is a natural extension of colonization, which is what the indigenous people are fighting against. So it's actually quite complex, right? Bringing all of those players to yeah. the table and then trying to work through these issues that are literally hundreds of years old with our current, you know, embodied <laughs> ways of being, you know, the ways that we are now um, occupying the bodies that we have. And many of us, you know, not being native to this area. What, what does that all mean and look like? I was just thinking like how, how layered and complex so many of the issues are that we have in this country with just Oh, so, so many different peoples that have interacted often violently and oppressively and all these just wrongs on top of wrongs that haven't been addressed adequately uh, for, for anyone involved. And, uh, and I just found myself thinking as you were talking, like, you know, the absence of some kind of restorative justice, that this is, this is where inevitably a culture will end up because, you know, every, every country has some kind of history of violence where I, I mean, I think we're, uh, kind of, uh, uh, a shining example of fucked up. Um, I, I gotta say in, in terms of our, of our history, but, um, but this is, this is what happens if you don't have something like that in places, you end up just layering generational 
harm on top of generational harm and not addressing root issues until there's just some kind of time of reckoning where everyone is is in need of something that has been denied over and over and over and and just we we have to do something we can't we can't just keep going the way we've been going and then i I the definition of insanity well (laughs) it is (laughs) yeah it's it's just such such a mess and ultimately no one's happy um and no one is is having their their needs met fully and it's oh, it's just very frustrating there there's a lot that needs to be ironed out with restorative justice but i what we're doing is not working and we're also not doing it for the reasons that the general public thinks we are i would be interested in turning the conversation to um to restorative justice in terms of sex offenders mm-hmm. um and some of the interesting work that has been happening in in a few places with rehabilitation mm-hmm. and i'm i wish that i had more that i could cite something that happens in this country is when sex offenders are released from prison um and they're on that list and they're not able to to live in certain communities or to be, you know, within a certain distance of schools and, you know, nobody wants to hire them uh, or, you know, be anywhere fucking near them. Mm-hmm. A lot of them end up in sex offender colonies. So there are little tent colonies that are outside of, you know, those like radius, those, those legal radii that they're, that they're given and they, they live there cast out of society but all together and that's something that we've done so that is kind of you know in a sense we have returned to that to that banishment thing but there's an extra step in there so instead of just saying get out you have to live in this you know outside of of our society now you know we put them in a cage first and then we reject them and then they have to go live in a camp Mm -hmm. um, because that's you know their option um and then i guess like the police keep breaking up these camps, even though there's there's nothing else to do. That is an aspect to to what's happening. Like you don't you don't necessarily just get your life back, you know, even after uh, a sentence that many would consider too short and then being released. That is something that is an aspect to to our pattern and our problem. There's some places, uh, and it's 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 hard because it's so difficult. This it's all so difficult. It's so raw. It's so heavy. It's hard work, and not that many people are willing to do it or able to do it or have that that resource, that emotional resource, to be able to to make space for for sex offenders in terms of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Because there were some places that were experimenting with community mm-hmm. and realizing that one of the main things that contributed to recidivism was sex offenders lacking community support Huge. when they yeah. attempted to re-enter society. Mm-hmm. Recidivism being... Returning to, cr- to the uh, crime. Con- yeah. Yes, perpetrating again. And so there were some kind of experimental groups that were offering that community outreach or even families that were welcoming sex offenders, uh, if not into their homes, then into their lives to some extent um, Mm -hmm. to offer them accountability, like emotional and social accountability and uh, and connection. Mm -hmm. I read that years ago. I don't know what's still going on. Uh, I will do more research and add that in episode notes. But I found that really fascinating. And it talked about how there's just a lack of of people who are willing to do that. Understandably so. What a huge thing to do. What a heavy and intense and, and yeah, kind of scary thing to do. Like if it's a family, like you got kids, damn, um, Mm -hmm. it's big. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and intense, but at the same time, just ultimately us not exploring these 
these things? What are the contributing factors to the people who are perpetrating certain acts? Or what are the contributing factors to people who struggle with certain problems? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we also demonize uh, folks who struggle with addiction. Yes. And I, I think it's like two, th- is it like two thirds of people who struggle with addiction have experienced childhood trauma? Hmm. And so it's like, okay, so we're not, you know, it's, it's not about the drugs. Uh, That's, that's just a symptom of trauma. We're not treating trauma Mm -hmm. and we're not protecting children. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of looking at like, okay, we need to look at why the fuck are all of these rapists raping people? What's, what's here? Like you were talking about with restorative justice, like what was at the core of why'd you do that thing? And let's deal with that. There's got to be something underneath this that we as a society can can take a look at and can start to handle on on a better level, on a bigger level, on a much more real and human level in order to actually start to reduce the harm that's being perpetrated on an epidemic level. It feels weird to say that word right now mm-hmm. in this this time of history but there is an epidemic of sexual assault and harm and has been for for all of human history um and we really like if we want to progress as a species or uh socially we need to to take a look at why we do this to each other and start to fix that yes and restorative justice seems to be a social uh, aspect of that process. Mm-hmm. Okay, there were a lot of things in there. So one is I, that's okay. So I'm thinking about trying just to go in order. So one of the things that you mentioned was these attempts at curbing recidivism in different community responses that were administrated by the state, administered by the state, right? Like with relocating people into communities where they will have a certain amount of support to avoid recidivism that sort of thing. To be honest, I don't really know what the what the latest on that is. I know the state was also for many years considering other quote-unquote resolutions, uh, which I would deem to be equally harmful, like castration, for example. Chemical castration has, has been used, I think, on many repeat sex offenders. And there's a part of me that totally, you know, like on a visceral level, very much understands that response. But again, we're seeing this as like a this is the state administering violence again, right? So I think one aspect of of this writing, probably the part that's the most useful, if it is at all to anybody now, is that it's looking at harm as perpetuated by the state and then on a more microcosm level, right, in our personal daily lives as an extension of that, that we do not know how to act in a way that is not violent because we are constantly experiencing state violence. Mm -hmm. So for some of us, that's more visceral on a daily basis. Like I was born into a white femme body that is relatively abled and I haven't experienced a lot of mental illness. And I grew up in a space that was relatively wealthy and we're usually a kid would be thrown into a rehab program sooner than going to juvie. Right. Um, So I haven't been the recipient of like tons of daily overt, explicit physical state violence. However, there are people that are my age that grew up in similar places and probably had very different experiences based on, you know, the body that they present in or their mental status or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so it's, I, I think, that perspective is like a very important starting point for understanding why we bother with restorative justice, because it's acknowledging, first of all, that there's a fundamental violence that's being enacted upon our bodies on a regular basis, even if it's just coercion under the threat of state violence, right, that's dominating our behavior and our activity and our actions, that that is nonetheless violence. That's, that's a coercive force. So we have to understand that we're being coerced on a state level before we can really understand why we're acting this way in our own lives personally, I think. So restorative justice, 
I don't know how successfully it's been used over the years since writing this in cases of sexual assault, but I know that in general, that it's an enormously, uh, that it's a much healthier response necessarily than a state response could ever be, even if it's improperly enacted, right? Or it's not well executed or whatever, because people are still trying, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, people are still trying to actually address harm that's been done without trying, resorting to more harm, more violence at the hands of the state. So even if it doesn't end up being effective, it's at least an attempt to go outside of that system of violence. Exactly. And I, I find myself, uh, as I was reading your paper, I found myself thinking about that and about the process and the where it lacks in terms of addressing sexual assault. But then I also found myself thinking about the entire process, like asking those questions that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, through that process of like, how can, you know, how did this affect you and how can, what does justice look like for you? And uh, and as difficult as the answers are for that, and as much as I have no idea what that looks like, the process of asking those questions, of acknowledging harm, and then asking like, what what can be done? What could this person do? That in itself is something that is lacking in our current system. And it's a very affirming series of questions. Yeah, it gives power to the It would party. be very affirming survivor yeah and and the whole process is so re-traumatizing for survivors and then ultimately they're left feeling that they weren't that they weren't consulted in those ways that their input wasn't valued or or, you know even uh, that they weren't even believed for most of it uh, often and then they're you know given the option of like how how many years do I want them to go away? I'm not in charge of, of that decision and I won't necessarily be happy with the results even, mm-hmm. uh, but those are my only options mm-hmm. um, is, is to put this person away or not put, put this person away uh, in a cage for a certain amount of time. And then they'll come out and uh, having received no amount of rehabilitation or being asked to take responsibility or, uh, or seek you know, reparation or, or atonement or anything like that. And they'll just be out presumably being a threat again. And that's, that's what a lot of survivors are left with. And that's very frustrating and scary and, uh, and re-traumatizing on, on multiple levels. Um, and that's not, you know, I, I haven't been through that. I can't speak to that experience personally, but even just like as much as it might fail, the restorative justice process of actually asking those questions would be far more affirming than than our current way of dealing with it. I, I don't know. That's just something that kept occurring to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a worthwhile process to consider for any kind of harm. It doesn't necessarily have to be so formalized, but just the line of questioning. Thank you so much for listening. You can join us for part two next week. Be sure to check out the episode notes for today's show because they are a veritable treasure trove of citations, videos, and links. If we mentioned it today, it's probably there. Shout out today to all my listeners in Finland. Finding OK is ranking top 30 for mental health podcasts right now over there. I have no idea how this happened, but that's amazing. Thank you so much, Finland. I love you please visit the podcast website www.findng-ok.com to contact me or to donate. Let me know if you're interested in joining me on the show. I would love to have you. Here's the part where I usually talk about how you can support the show, but today I'm going to ask you to support Lily. She mentioned earlier in the episode that she and a number of other folks, some of them indigenous people, are facing multiple felonies for allegedly participating in the removal of a racist monument. In the episode notes, you will find a crowdfunding campaign to help with their legal fees. Please share and donate if you can. Every little bit helps. Thank you. I have created a private Finding OK Facebook group for survivors. You are welcome there, and I hope you'll join us. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast to help me reach more listeners. Reviews are featured on the website, and you get a shout-out on the next episode. If you can't afford to donate, 
Leaving a review and sharing online or through word of mouth is the best way you can help the podcast. Please share, subscribe, and donate if you can. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your heart is a muscle the size of your fist. Keep on loving, keep on fighting, and hold on, and hold on. Hold on for your life. Hi, thank you for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing... Oh, there's a Ruru dog. <laughs>